Hi everybody and welcome back to Art Histories. I hope you didn't miss me too much in the week we were away. The mid-season hiatus gave me a much needed chance to take a breath and ensure I'm making these episodes the absolute best I can for you. Hopefully you'll agree this one is worth the wait. I'm so excited to talk to you about this week's guest that I'm just going to jump straight in. I'm completely delighted this week to bring to your attention the thoughts and feelings of the oh-so-lovely James Hunter. Still inside me, beats the heart of that shy, quiet kid. I'll forever feel I'm not sure of my place in, in the order of things, but I feel that they help me come to terms with who I am a bit more. James and I have always gotten on really well, but in recording this episode I truly got to peek inside his soul, and I couldn't be happier with what I found. James is measured, perceptive, and has a complete heart of gold. Since I've launched this series, he has been one of the most vocally supportive people in my circle, sending encouraging feedback on Messenger and sharing the podcast on his social media. I'm more appreciative of that than he will ever know. The way James speaks about the works that he loves the most will inspire the most creatively drained out there, and I personally guarantee this episode will make you smile. James has always been a joy to work with. He has such a magnetic and lively energy, but having him on Art Histories introduced me to his softer side, and I know for sure I've made a firm friend. I'll never stop being grateful that people trust me with the pieces of art that are closest to their heart, and this episode was a reminder of what a privilege that is. Right, my rambling is finally over. Let's get into the episode, because I'm too impatient for you to hear it. Here's James. Hello, James. Hello, Olivia. <laughs> Welcome to Art Histories. Um, thank you so much for being a guest on this little show of mine. I'm so excited to have you virtually here with me today. Oh, you're absolutely welcome. It's like uh, it's a joy to be here. Um, obviously, we'll get into some stuff, but yeah, it's it's been a fun journey. Yeah, like getting ready for this. You'd like to thank the academy, your parents. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's so nice to see your face. Um, I haven't seen you properly in months, so I'm really looking forward to using this show as a medium for catching up with you. A little reminder for you, if over the one week break you somehow forgot how this works, but this podcast aims to provide a raw, intimate study of the power of the arts by inviting one guest on a week to talk about three pieces of art. And when I say art, I mean things like films, TV shows, albums that have moulded them or shaped the course of their life somehow. James, your choices were intriguing, and I cannot wait to take a deep dive. Are you ready to begin? I, I am. Um, it was, it was an intense. It was not intense. It was just really hard to try and narrow down like what I think. De- not so much defines me, but what I found like really contribute to the person I've become or mm. become in. I feel like I always forget that it's such a big question to ask people. I just kind of, I just ping the question off. I'm like, here, what's three pieces of art that completely define who you are as a person? Let me know in two days. And (laughs) (laughs) and some people know right away and some people are like, "Um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get back to you on that. Uh, Well, one of the choices was like straight off the bat, I knew as soon as you asked me this, Mm. but then 
it was just picking what the other ones would be yeah um what they meant to me do i still feel the same as i do now as i did when i first discovered them what's changed and things like that Mm, it's a lot to think about my only other prerequisite on this show is that before we begin talking about what you've picked today i like to talk to each of my guests about how i know them It gives you, the listener, an insight into our dynamic and helps to set the tone for the podcast. So, James, how do we know each other? This could be a very short answer. Oh, we were destined and blessed to meet at our uh, workplace. Yeah, we uh, we met at ATG. Um, You were someone I instantly connected with at work. I don't actually remember our first shift together, but I feel like I've known you right from the start of my career at the theatre. Um, you must have been one of the people who trained me at some point. I feel like you you were somebody who trained me. Yeah, I feel like I tried to in some aspects because <laughs> I know how much some things you were missing out on were bugging you. And I was me trying to be ever helpful and supportive and get out of doing it myself. Yeah. Would try and be like, oh, hey, do you want to learn? But mainly, mainly the support stuff? thing. Yeah, we'll yeah. go with that. Of, of course, it's, it's all about <laughs> building the team. Yeah and supportive (laughs) growth environment (laughs) ATG was the first workplace I felt truly able to be myself from the get-go and you being one of the people there was definitely a large part of that we have the most fun on shifts together we are always laughing and cracking jokes and our whip smart banter has become legendary I like to think um (laughs) we came up with a ridiculous in joke together involving an infamous fast food chain that became the basis of every and any shift that we had together. It is just the best feeling having such a great camaraderie with those that you work with. And I feel like the theatre is such a great place to connect with your colleagues because, you know, you've got a mutual passion for what you do, although you are more of a film man, but we will get onto that later. Yeah, um, I completely forgot about the fast food chain based um, joke. I'm sure certain people in certain group chats would wish i would forget it but now I've but we never reminded. will the thing is james it's, we never it's will. gonna forever be there it will be in my eulogy you have always been so supportive of my career progression showing me the ropes and training me on various roles within the theater and as a recent graduate just finding her feet in the industry i am more appreciative of that than i can tell you i feel like i've gotten to know you fairly well through work and i've always admired from afar your funko pop shop that you run alongside working with us um i remember when you first told me about it as well i know that film is quite important to you but aside from that i don't really have any clue about the artistic works that mean the most to you so i'm excited to get to know you a little bit better through that this will be fun are you excited you ready to go i am i'm very what's what's the word i used in our icebreaker when we went back to it i am hyped for this (laughs) you are hyped (laughs) lovely all right let's do it so the first of your choices today is a film and you've picked Stand By Me, which is a film based on a novella by Stephen King. So Stand By Me is a 1986 American coming-of-age film directed by Rob Reiner, or Rena. I always have a problem with names on this podcast, but we're just going to go with it. Based on Stephen King's 1982 novella, The Body. The film stars River Phoenix, Will Wheaton, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, and a very young Kiefer Sutherland, and follows four boys in Castle Rock in 1959, who go on a hike to find the dead body of a missing boy. The story is told in a flashback as grown-up Gordy Lachance reads in the newspaper that his childhood best friend, Chris Chambers, has died. 
He then begins writing a memoir of the incident when, as a child, he, Chris, and their two friends, Vern and Teddy, go on the aforementioned expedition. So, I think before we get going, the first question I wanted to ask you about this film is, how did you first find it? Was it through the novel or as a film on its own? Um, I first discovered it in its film form. Mm-hmm. Like I was fairly young. I think like about eight or nine. Really? Probably someone wow. my age shouldn't be watching. <laughs> Such, that's young for uh, Stephen King such a film but yeah I, I remember I think my dad must have had it taped or it was on one day and um, yeah I was just drawn in by the four boys the friends it's it's an adventure as as you said you stole my line it's a coming of age thing for Stephen mm-hmm. King they expect an aspect of horror and I suppose you get that with, with the dead body but it's not really the focal point the story is them no. and their journey, um, very much for me it's about their journey mm. and the significance it has on them Like it, it's, it's got a lot of like meaning I think really. So you obviously mentioned that horror is one of the hallmarks of King, um, are you familiar with King's works as a whole or is it mainly this film that appealed to you the most? Um, if if they could see this, they'll see my shelf full of Stephen King books, <laughs> um, my Stephen King Funko Pop. But yeah, he's he's quite a big, like literary, influence for me. It's it's work I'm definitely drawn on. I'm not really a horror fan, like when it comes to films, because mm-hmm. it's not what I really imagine horror to be. Mm. But the way he tells his stories, the, the way he weaves the characters mm-hmm. like together, and how it progresses, like it, it's a page turner for me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. You said you were eight when you saw this, so this must have been one of the first kind of King works that you engaged with, really. Yeah, it, it was the first. The very I first. I don't think I'd watch Cujo at that point, so no. <laughs> <laughs> I would hope you hadn't been watching a lot of Stephen King before that. It's um, it's interesting that you obviously talked about the fact that death doesn't seem the central focus of the film and that it's not actually ostensibly a horror film either because a lot of Stephen King's works are kind of characterized by that horror aspect but it's not really something that's kind of prominent in this film and it's strange because I think I went into it expecting to see a horror um, because you have those kind of connotations that you associate with Stephen King Um, but yeah it's definitely much more of a coming-of-age film like you said there's there's an undercurrent of death and mortality running throughout, but it's really much more about the innocence of boyhood that we see in the camaraderie between the boys and and kind of yeah, this totally. yeah this kind of sense that it's very much temporary, um, and that's kind of highlighted by the fact that we know that Gordy's older brother has died, um, and also we see constant comparisons in the film between the four boys that are our main protagonists, and also. Um, I think it's Chris's older brother and his friends. We kind of see their group dynamics kind of reflected against that. Um, so there's very much like a fragility to it all, a sense that that this kind of state of being, of being young and being relatively innocent and kind of having a little bit of awareness about some of the darkness in the world, but not kind of being fully exposed to it. Um, I think it captures a really interesting age, especially in in young boys. Is that something that you kind of felt drawn to when you watched it? Um, yeah, I I would suppose so. I mean, in, in obviously when I watched it, I wasn't thinking so deeply, but because <laughs> you know you just see it as our oh, four boys off on an adventure, mm. and you know it's fun. Like it, it appeals to a young child that enjoys playing outside, mm. you know, using their imagination and things like that. But um, completely, I feel the older group, like 
Chris's older brother, Eyeball, Ace, and the other insignificant morons. I feel they're a reflection of who they could become if they take the wrong choices yeah. as they grow up. Mm -hmm. So like it's kind of like they're looking into a potential future when they face them. And it's their choices towards the end that I think diverts them from, or even the choices throughout the film, um, that diverts them from that sort of outcome, mm. as it were. I suppose in that sense, it's one of those films that, so you say you watched it when you were quite young, but it's something that you can come back to. And it probably has more significance when you watch it when you're older, because you do pick up a lot on those themes and those feelings of being young that you you don't really appreciate at the time like you said if you saw it when you were eight or nine you were just thinking oh that's great they're boys they're out having fun they're they're being wild and free and and uh, kind of largely unselfconscious but returning to it as a as an older person with more experience you do you feel a lot of those kind of nostalgic feelings which i th i think makes it so special yeah every i, I rewatched it yesterday mm. um because i wanted it to be as fresh as possible no i rewatched it today it was today i watched it <laughs> oh my god losing track of the days already everything just blends into one because <laughs> um, i wanted to keep it fresh mm. but even then just remembering i'm watching it and I still feel like the eight-year-old that first saw it mm. each time I watch it. And I've seen it, oh, God, I can't even think how many times. But um, I definitely, every time I watch it, I take something different away mm. from it. Or I, I see something slightly different because I've had more experience in life or certain situations. And I'm like, I watch it and I think, oh, yeah, that's like... And then like a, an experience will come to mind. Or exactly. It will just remind me of how I felt going through that stage of my life mm. it's really interesting for me one of the things that i think i've learned through doing this podcast is film is not necessarily a genre that i always engage with on that kind of level but it, it is something that you can always have a changing relationship with because every time you go to watch a film you bring more experiences or different experiences to it and with something like this that definitely kind of marks a very specific time in your life you can go to it as someone who's in that time and fully appreciate it for what it is on a surface level you can go to it as someone older than that and be reminded of that time you can go as someone much much older what, what are you trying to say much much older <laughs> you go to it as someone really 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 <laughs> old <laughs> and you bring a different level of experience to it each time and in that way it is one of those films that's always shifting and always adapting and i don't know i really loved it knowing that you you found it when you were younger though there is something that i wanted to ask you because one of the main things i noticed about the film is that in the four main characters there are different things to relate to and align with and i feel like each offered us a different facet of boyhood I suppose you know you've got Gordy who's kind of quiet and he's got talent for writing that's kind of ignored by everybody but his his late brother Denny and then Chris um, and then you've got Chris who comes from a bad family and everyone knows is going to turn out bad but he's actually quite smart and compassionate and is the unspoken leader of the group you've got Teddy who's a bit of a live wire um, he often acts very unpredictably but we learn that his father has PTSD and often takes it out on him yeah. and then you've got Vern who's kind of the comic relief he often gets picked on or not taken seriously by the other boys but he's very sweet and well-mannered and, and quite good-natured do you have a favorite of our four characters um if I'd have to pick just the one I'd probably actually say Vern because really? there's just like, such a pure um, naive innocence mm -hmm. to him 
and how he always gets talked around into doing what the group wants to do mm-hmm. because he just wants to be a part of it and I think like that's how I felt growing up. Like, There's aspects of Gordy, how he was basically ignored by a lot of people rather than his small, close-knit group, mm-hmm. which is what I always preferred, you know, uh, quality over quantity in friendship. For sure. But, um, yeah, those are probably two, but if I had to pick, it would be Vern for his, his just pure innocence mm. and wanting to fit in and just be accepted and loved by his group. Yeah, it's interesting because Vern... Out of the boys, he's the one where we don't actually find out anything really about his family or his his background, as opposed to the other three, we do get a little bit more context about their family lives and their situations. And that kind of lack of complexity, it, it might mean that you would write him off as a character and just say, well, he's not as fully formed as the other three, he's not as interesting, but maybe he's there deliberately, you know, he's put there by King so that we can kind of see this innocence in its rawest form. Um, I think when he suggests going to see the body, I don't know if you kind of got this from that, but I I didn't think he was going to see out of any particular kind of want to see a dead body or maybe a little bit more of the, I suppose, the morbid curiosity that the other boys have. I think he just suggests it because he wants to go on an adventure with his friends. And I feel like that is the purest reason for suggesting something like that. That's 100% what i think yeah it's um he he just wants to spend time with his exactly. friends like, oh, I'll just tell your mum you're staying at mine and i'll tell mine um yeah i think he just wants to spend time maybe on some level he knows these times are drawing to an end mm. he just doesn't understand it but you know somewhere in his subconscious he maybe thinks there's not going to be many summers like this i want as many memories as i can get with my friends and there's something so much more precious about that and that he does feel like the only character that's like that i mean in the beginning when the other three boys are in the treehouse you can see them playing cards and smoking and that's not something that would be out of place in like a gentleman's club or being done by boys much older than them Um, and (laughs) Vern's the only one who doesn't get this kind of adult setup in fact we're introduced to him when he's looking for pennies which is probably one of the most innocent things that you could think of and I feel like he's kind of preserved throughout the film, like Stephen King's saying, this is how tender and rare, actually, true innocence and childhood is. And the other boys have all kind of been tainted by other things that have meant they've grown up a little bit faster or they've been exposed to these horrors a bit. Yeah, they've definitely had to. Yeah, they've had to grow up faster. It's not their fault, but you can kind of compare them against one another. And I think that incident when they do find the body obviously it changes them all and you can probably kind of see it in Vern the most um and you can see how events like this do alter things you know within relationships and also just people in general um yeah I I always wondered does he ever find those pennies like I don't think even in the novel <laughs> that's the biggest unanswered it, it question says, of like, the he film. returns home and it just comes to him oh I put them yeah I I don't know Maybe he's forever searching for those metaphorical, symbolic pennies. Mm. I, I don't know. It's not for me to say, I suppose. <laughs> that's, between, that's between Stephen King and Stephen King alone, I think. Exactly. It's one of his yeah. many, many secrets. <laughs> um, has your favourite character changed at all as you've grown up? Are there other ones that you find yourself aligning with more now? Or do you still kind of gravitate towards Vern? Um, I think... Probably Gordy now because I'm trying to embrace um, more creative aspects mm. of my personality that for, I don't know, for no real reason, I feel I've kind of hidden from people. Like I, I enjoy writing. I might suck at it, but I enjoy things like that and creating things from my imagination. Mm. 
but you know growing up in a not exactly the nicest of towns not that it's an absolute dump but <laughs> the kids are only re- were re- only ever really interested in sports mm. so I'd felt like I had to try and fit in with that much like Gordy how yeah. he's always quizzed why don't you play football like your brother and he's like I, I write I'm just like I, I like to ride my bike I don't want to chase a football around the field yeah so um I think Gordy I probably align myself with more now mm. possibly um Chris in the way that he tries to support um people and encourage them to be the person he sees them to be mm. but for whatever reason they're blind to it but I think forever in my heart I'll be Van just just yeah I think that's yeah. a great character to want to be I think when I was watching it obviously I don't have the privilege of having watched it when I was younger so I'm coming not as a boy uh, but as a 23 year old <laughs> woman so you would think that there would be less that I could kind of find to align with but those those kinds of of feelings of kind of being on the cusp of adulthood and knowing that things will get a lot more complicated and and a, a lot sooner than you think they will as well um and kind of clinging on to those those last little aspects of being young with your friends and i feel like the film is such a love letter to friendship despite those typically horror aspects that do come in later on in the film and and make it a king film really um it wouldn't be wouldn't be a stephen king work without some kind of horror in there i do think for the most part i was watching it and i was thinking this film is about friendship and about the kind of friendship that you have when you are that age and it is pure to a certain extent um and kind of without those those sort of complications that come in later on in life did you find this when you were watching it when you were younger or is it something that's kind of come into play a lot more as you get older it's definitely something that's come into play a lot more when i'm older when i was younger it was just a lot of enjoying boys on an adventure Mm. that's all it ever was to me as a kid um just enjoying that but growing up you definitely realize how fickle childhood friendships are yeah um especially the scene with chris and gordy and the gun around the back of the diner Mm -hmm. Chris swears it's um, it wasn't loaded. Obviously, it was, um, but how a simple pinky swear, like just resolved any lingering issues yeah. and ill feeling Gordy may have harboured at that point, mm-hmm. and it just went back to being all cool, and they were best friends again. And and it's a time when, I mean, it might not be a time for everyone. I don't think everybody has exactly those kinds of friendships when they're young because of the kind of society we live in now. But I suppose. At the time, those boys really are each other's support system, whether they realise it or not, whether they're particularly supportive of one another vocally or not. Um, they are like a little family unit, and we do see that a lot of them have kind of been failed in some way by their traditional family setups, particularly people like Gordy and Chris. Um, you know, Chris, it's kind of assumed he's not going to go anywhere um, or do anything, and we do find out that he does end up having a career um and Gordy is just completely overlooked by both his parents so you know seeing seeing things like that and you you could take from that instant that oh yes their friendship is so fickle and you know it it can be resolved so quickly and something like that would probably be a bigger conflict but actually how wonderful that something like that can actually be solved that quickly by just you know a pinky promise or you know, when they have that beautiful scene where they're walking behind Vern and Teddy who are up ahead messing around, you know, not not talking about anything particularly important. And then Chris says to Gordy, you know, you've got to go. 
and do proper classes and you won't want to talk to the three of us anymore because you've got to ascend what we are you know you're the cleverest of us you've got to go and be a writer um and he really encourages that that talent of Gordy's and even though you know it might not be done in the most elegant way or we might not necessarily recognize it at first as support because of the way it's framed you know like little boys being like yeah you're going to find someone better than us it is it is support and it is the kind of support he should have been getting from his parents um and it's down to a 12 year old boy to give him that encouragement um it's really touching oh totally he's um he's encouraging him even though he knows it's gonna hurt when he inevitably loses him because he's Mm. gone on to bigger and better things but he wants that for him um he wants him to be everything he knows he can be. He wants him to see he's so much more than the invisible child that his parents ironically don't see. Mm. And I think that's the clever thing about King's characters is that they are deceptively very intelligent because in that moment, Chris is kind of understanding that this is not the kind of friendship that's going to support both of them growing. Um, It's not the kind of friendship where they're going to be able to grow together. He's like, you are going to outgrow me and you are going to go on to better things than me, but I want you to. And even at 12 years old, he kind of has a a concept of that. And I don't think I would have done at that age. I don't think I would have had any idea what what that sort of of friendship meant, the kind of encouraging and pushing your friends, um, even if it takes them away from you. And we do we do learn later on in the film that um, Gordy and Chris, you know, they don't speak much after that, really. They kind of drift apart. So in that way, I feel like it's it's kind of deceptively mature, <laughs> even though <laughs> maturity is not the word that comes to mind when you watch the film. When you go away and think about it, it, it really does kind of come to light a bit more, which I thought was really interesting. Um, yeah, I think there's definitely more to even uh, more to the characters than they even know themselves. I know obviously they're fictional characters in a fictional world, so they are words on a page or people on a screen portraying people in in an alternate like fantasy world like created world but um yeah i think maybe there's something within them that knows they're there they're there as friends for a reason like they are together for a reason like their coming together wasn't by chance yeah and that's so typical of king i'm starting to realize the more i become familiar with his work um that nothing is left to chance everything everything in his stories is there for for some kind of reason which is it's just so clever he's kind of blowing my mind a little bit um speaking of king he himself apparently was quite impressed with the film um on the special features of the 25th anniversary blu-ray set he suggested that he considered the film to be the best successful translation to film of any of his works which is quite a lofty declaration um i wanted to know how many king films have you seen and do you think this is the best one uh I mean, I've I've seen quite a few. There's there's a handful I probably haven't seen. There's a couple on Netflix that I've not seen yet, but that's more because one of them I haven't read. Well, I haven't read them yet, so I kind of wanted to read them before I watched them, so then I could be like, you know, rather than watch it and then read it and be like, well, this is completely different. Mm. But the best, I would say, it's in the top the the top three um, adaptations of his work. For me personally, possibly shades it at the top spot, but there may be another one that might nick it. Mm. 
because they are they are the subject of much controversy i mean put bluntly they are usually panned by critics and king fans alike there are there are a few notable exceptions um that are kind of widely considered which i think this film is generally among them people do say that this film is is one of the better ones um and shawshank redemption as well which i haven't seen which is a crime it's also in the same book the body is in oh really it's in a book called different seasons and for the length that shawshank is it's a short story wow see yeah it's pretty detailed this is the thing with king there is so much in his stories that even short stories can can make long films yeah do you do you think you like this film so much because it is one of the best adaptations of a king work or do you think it's more for the content and the story itself um i I would probably say it's more for the content and story itself because obviously when i watched it i I had no idea yeah (laughs) it's so like obviously but when when you've read read it and you've watched it, you can see it's it's a pretty faithful adaptation. Mm. Other people out there will probably like, oh, there's something wrong with it. But I, I just try to find the joy in it, and I just want to enjoy it, not pick holes in things. I'm not a critic, mm. um, but yeah, I I just take what I get from it, mm. and I just leave it as that. It strikes a nice balance in that you can very much watch it and just take it as a story about four boys and this kind of very fragile and tender portrayal of four boys being young boys uh, before the world starts to intrude. But um, there is a beauty in that you can kind of walk a fine line and come back to it and then take some of these kind of more emotionally involving themes and more complex ideas from it as well over time, which which I loved. Um, I really, really enjoyed this film. Um, It felt like a bit of a departure from King's usual repertoire. Um, I am just beginning to get to grips with his style of writing through other research for this show, which I cannot currently talk about. Yeah, no matter how many times I've asked. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And it deals with difficult themes such as morality and death with a slightly softer hand through the eyes of children, which I think is sometimes the most intelligent way to look at these sorts of things. So thank you so much for introducing this to me because I really enjoyed it. I'm always happy to introduce someone to some of um, King's work, even if a lot of it. For Wool, it's a journey to discover a body. I feel also the story is very much the death of childhood. And yeah, how at the beginning, Gordy thought their town was so big and it was his whole world. Like it was the whole, and when he comes back, he says it feels so small. And I feel like that's totally in line with how they've grown mm. even though it's like what two days they're away mm. it it feels like it must feel like they've been away forever but that's the thing about childhood you are so easily moldable at that age that something like a two-day expedition um admittedly i've never gone on a two-day expedition to find a dead body i think it would probably change me a lot <laughs> even now but <laughs> even even those small events when you're a child they really do amplify things and they can completely change your character because you are still being molded by everything you see and are exposed to and i think it, it captures something really special in in putting that on screen yeah and i, I felt with the um prominent um feature of the train tracks is very much them progressing through life the train following i felt was quite representative of death you know it's ending their childhood they're growing up um there's only one way you can go they may deviate on their little adventure to the body but they'll always return to that one track yeah there's there's no escape and they'll they'll end up in the same place and also we're constantly told that 
life can end at any time just because you're a child it doesn't mean you have your whole life ahead of you we see that in the fact that Gordy's older brother has died and also the fact that they are going to find a body of a young boy I think it's Ray Brower He's around their age I think yeah Bauer. constantly these reminders like remember you don't have forever um, and you don't even necessarily have the rest of your lives the, just the way King writes lends itself so well when done right to the screen if uh, put in the hands of people that know what they're doing um, there's, there's certain directors I won't mention because they royally messed up particular films and adaptations it even messed up sequels but that's neither here nor there mm. but yeah I feel like it's quite difficult to capture the level of nuance that you can have in a literary text it's it's quite difficult to put that all on screen and even then when you do it you can't rely on the fact that your audience is going to see it or even pick up on most of it yeah with his work you definitely can't take things at face value there's always a deeper meaning to everything he writes (laughs) i think the last thing i wanted to ask you about this film is the last line i think which is used in the film and i'm i'm guessing it's part of the short story as well which i will go and read because i really want to now and I can't remember exactly what it is word for word, but I think it's, I don't think I ever had any friends for the rest of my life like I did when I was 12. And then it's Jesus does anyone. Um, and that line... That's, I think, literally word for word, yeah. Did I quote it and word for word accidentally? Yeah, I think so. I might be wrong. I'm sure someone will maybe drop a comment or hit me on Messenger and be like, oh my God, no, that's not <laughs> it. But yeah, that's, um, yeah, I don't think anyone... Even now, I can't say any any friends, any friendships are like the ones I had mm. back then, just because they were so pure, so innocent. and Exactly. And it's something we don't think about a lot. I suppose now, when you think about your friendships, you think, oh, isn't it wonderful that they're all so complex and fully formed and layered, and I know people inside and out. But actually, there is something so beautiful and so pure about the kind of friendship you have where... You know, you don't spend all of your time discussing your traumas or you don't know you don't know how much you've both been damaged or weathered or beaten down by life. You're just taking each day as it comes and you're doing it with someone whose company you enjoy. And I feel like, yeah, you never get that again. Yeah, like I don't think I ever thought of like how damaged someone was as when I was a kid. I just felt a connection to someone. Yeah. They they became a friend, like they were perhaps like aspects of their personality was a missing part of me, like a piece I was missing and they filled that piece at that time, mm. which I feel a lot of that group, there's pieces of each other that fit the missing pieces within the others. Like a little jigsaw. Yeah. Mm. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the next of your choices today is a song and you've chosen the song Blue in the Face by the band Alkaline Trio. Alkaline Trio are an American rock band from Chicago, Illinois, um, and since 2001, the band has consisted of Matt Skiba, Dan Andriano, again, probably butchering that, and Derek Grant. They were founded in 1996 by Skiba and bassist Rob Doran, and also drummer Glenn Porter, who I'm guessing are not part of the band anymore. Um, Blue in the Face comes from their fourth album, Good Morning, which was released in 2003. And this album is generally seen as where Alkaline Trio reaches their final form, as the lineup that forms on this album is one that endures and still does well today. 
It's a bit of a fan favourite, which might come as a shock to people, as in 2018, lead vocalist Matt Skiba said that making the record was so frustrating that he was punching holes in the walls. <laughs> the first thing that I wanted to ask you about this song is, how did you first find it? Um, and do you remember the first time that you heard it? The first time I discovered the band, I was in... I think a graphics class with my friend Hayley and she had like a compilation CD like you'd get with music magazines mm-hmm. and it, it featured a song by them and I was like oh this is really cool I really like it but they kind of just like disappeared from my mind mm. but then like the album Good Morning come out and um oh no I think before then I was like oh who was that band I really liked and I was like texting her for ages not realizing she'd changed her number so <laughs> I don't think she ever knew but yeah, I remember the first time I heard it. Obviously, I was just leaving school. Shows how old I am. It brought up a, a lot of things for me Like mm. at that point in my life. I felt not like each song spoke to different experiences, but there was just themes. And it's quite melancholic. The, mm. the, the way he writes is quite dark, but it's very bittersweet. And I think I was drawn to that because I'm not, despite how cheerful I may sound, I'm quite a I'm, no, I'm not even a dark person. I'm just drawn to that aspect. The imagery is much better than sunny and light because I feel it tells a more truer story. Mm. And, and I feel Blue in the Face does that quite well. Mm. So was it that song that you found first from the album and then you discovered the rest of it? Or did you find the album as a whole and then this was just the song that kind of spoke to you on a different level to the others, perhaps? Um I think the first song from that album I heard might have been like one of the singles off it. Might have been We've Had Enough. But then mm. like that prompted me to go on LimeWire, which anyone of my age will know how horrendous that was for your PCs and laptops. And <laughs> I just ripped all the songs from it. And I, I just fell in love with them. And then from then I went through their back catalogue to their first album Mm-hmm. Then the second album, the third, which I then was like, oh, that's the song from from that lesson. Oh, how serendipitous. I love that. I love when that happens, when you you hear something and then you forget about it and you go about your life and then you find you find a band and you start listening through their discography and, and you find that song and you think, oh, no wonder I was drawn to this band because they've kind of been subconsciously lurking there in my in my brain for years. So one of the first things that I picked up upon when I was listening to it is that the overriding feeling of the song appears to be resignation. It's kind of heartbreaking in this way. You know, the narration of the song appears to come from a man who's kind of accepted that whoever he's singing to or about is going to leave him. It's quite a morose listen. Um, Is there a particular time that you would go to this song um, and listen to it? And what specifically does it give you in that sense? Um, I could go to this song and on a sunny Tuesday afternoon. Really? It's, it's just, a, it's, it's a song I enjoy. It doesn't always resonate in an emotional sense. Sometimes I can enjoy it purely as, as a good song. Mm. But there's aspects and there's themes within it. Like, it's very much um, a breakdown of a relationship through substance abuse. I think that's quite clear to anyone that knows anything about him mm-hmm. or researched him for any podcasts. But... Uh, I feel like it's it's a case of someone like leaving him because he won't change, and they mm. have, and he's stuck in the way of in 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 the ways that he's always known, which is obviously these crutches that he leans on, and mm. this person just can't take it anymore. I feel like there's a real sense of truth to the song, and 
whilst I haven't listened to the rest of the album, from my research, I did get a sense that it very much doesn't really fit the tone of the rest of the album. You know, they, they are like a punk rock band. And while every song might not be the same or there might not be exactly the sort of same feeling with, with every song, you know, this comes at the very end of the album and it's a really simple song. The only elements in its composition are Skiba's vocals and an acoustic guitar. Um, and it does kind of, it sticks out amongst that, I suppose. Do you think this kind of, this sense of honesty and the fact that fans will know um, if they know anything about his background, that it's a very true and honest song, do you think that's part of what makes it so special? I, I think so. I feel like, I don't know whether he said anywhere, but I feel it's a conscious choice for it to be such a stripped down, because mm. obviously they're a three-piece band and this song is just him. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's a very conscious like choice by him to for it to be just him for him to be that honest it needed to be like him on his own so there is like a full band version but it's not as good it doesn't hit the same way no i was reading that generally the the main criticism from the album comes from the fact that it is it does feel overproduced at times and obviously this song couldn't be called overproduced in any sense of the word because it is the kind of the rawest version of a song that it could possibly be I think there's something really special about that because quite often when you listen to songs or you engage with bands or artists there's always a sense that you're being taken on a particular narrative and I don't know whether you feel this but when I listen to songs I'm always wondering how much truth there is in the narrative that the song is selling me or whether it's purely been constructed for my entertainment and as someone who really really invests in music um i can find that a bit disorientating sometimes do you like the fact that in this song there's a very clear story and you know that there's an element of truth behind it do you think that's part of what makes it such a special listen for you i i think so yeah i'm very much drawn to things where they've put a piece of themselves in it because you will mm-hmm. know if you ever go and see them live they're going to sing these songs convincingly forever because it's something that is obviously a part of them they felt it they feel it it's like it's not like a pop song not that all Mm. pop songs aren't you know from the heart but a lot of it is manufactured and they're just singing it for hits whereas they're writing from a place within you know from an from an honest place i'd imagine and they're just weaving it in a more Mm. um, imaginative way than just saying you know i feel down (laughs) there's um there's an element of trust in it as well Um, And there's a feeling that if you listen to the song and you know the band um, and you're a proper fan, then you will know what it means and you will know that it's a true song. And I feel like it's it's very conspiratorial in that way. It's saying, you know, if you know, you know. Uh, And if you're listening to this and you're familiar with us and you are a big fan, then you will understand completely what this song's about. Um, And I really like that they've put that much trust in their fan base. Um, I wanted to ask you, is it quite a small fan base is it quite an intimate relationship that they have with their fans um i think i mean they're widely known they, they can sell fairly mm. large venues but i think they still maintain quite an intimate aspect with with their interactions with fans at signings um you know meet and greets and things it's still very much a personable not just oh hey yeah scribble sign move along they, they take time mm. to speak to each person um, they'll, they'll ask a name oh, they don't just lovely. scribble their name on a cd and shove it down the line for the next one they'll they'll ask how you are 
Um, you know, they, they genuinely seem interested, even if they forget the very second you walk away. For at least that split mm. second, you're, you know, you're connected together in that moment, which I really like. Have you been to see them live then? Yes. Have you Have you engaged with them? <gasps> really? How many times? Um, I've seen them, like, I think four times. And then they oh. did a sign in at the, the Virgin Megastore in Oxford Street, I mm-hmm. think it was, um, which was like a whole wristband, like, deal with like oh. a single that my friend managed to get me and I was over <laughs> the moon like, I, honestly I was bouncing like I was so excited mm-hmm. uh, even more so that like um he you know he took the time to ask me who my name was and you know just for that brief second for him to know I existed which sounds so lame no like, but it's looking true back, but at that moment I was like oh my god this guy that like I look up to so much in his writing and his music mm-hmm. he, he knows I exist there's something so special about that as well because particularly with bands and music these these people form part of your day in ways that they could never know because you'll be listening to them when you're having your breakfast or on your way to work or you'll be playing them to someone on a first date because it means a lot to you you know they feature in the most intimate moments of your life and that's what I always find so interesting about music is that these people record a song they make a song they put it out there and then people take it and and put it into their lives all the time in different situations and it never gets to be reciprocated because you can't you can't have that kind of relationship with them because that's not how it works you know it's not accessible but in that moment when you were standing talking to him he was perceiving you as you were perceiving him and it's kind of the one moment where that relationship feels even because you are with him in that moment and he's with you and I I can't imagine what that would feel like if I got to meet one of my favourite artists and know that in that moment I was who they were engaging with when they had featured in my life so many times in so many different situations. I think I would probably just break down. <laughs> so I surprised myself by remaining relatively like calm and collected. My friend, on the other hand, went mute. Like he, he didn't, I mean, he's a fan, but he, he wasn't as big a fan as me. Um, but yeah, he was like, I, I couldn't talk to him. And I moved along the line. And when I spoke to Dan, who's the bassist, I with glee shouted out he's signing in gold pen. I don't know why <laughs> this like fascinated so much, but I was like, oh my God, it's a gold pen. I, just, yeah. Um, I, I think it was just the excitement of actually getting to meet them because I always thought the closest I would get, ever get is um, like a few hundred feet, like at a venue. At a venue, like, you yeah. You can just about see them, but to literally mm. be the other side of a trestle table. And I'm like, I could reach out and touch you. I didn't. Yeah. There's no restraining orders. It's fine. <laughs> but And they even told like the security guard to shut up because he was trying to usher like the queues along. Mm. And then they were just like, no, shut up. They're talking. And then they'll just turn and let you have your moment, which I just thought was great. I think that's so wonderful because definitely as a music fan, you do kind of come to accept that there's only a certain level of gratification you're ever going to get from it you think the best way I'm ever going to be able to express my love for this band is at a concert or at a gig and then I will be in the same room as them and that that just has to be enough and most of the time you'll take that but when you do get those opportunities to kind of be on a more intimate level with them and I don't know even even have a conversation as you got to you come away and it just feels like the most validating thing it sounds like they've hit that really sweet spot where they're successful enough that you can engage with different people about them and they can sell out venues and kind of still be commercial enough to keep going but also that they invest in each fan individually and 
there's also a level of fans that kind of know their music a bit better than others and get get the benefits of understanding songs like this completely and knowing that it's completely about the lead singer's struggle with addiction because they know the band and they've invested in the band i feel like they've got a really a kind of sweet spot there which is really nice i also feel just as a whole on the album it's probably the best his vocals have sounded on any of the albums mm. which is a little ironic considering they were wrecked through drinking and smoking like that's why he sounds so husky compared to other other songs he was he was wrecked but i, I feel like that that tone just really adds to each of the songs absolutely because yeah. they are a bit more raw and they're not defined and you can't really overproduce it mm. because you know inconsistencies in his vocals and the range but mm. and especially with a song like blue in the face that is actually about addiction on some level um when you hear the vocals and you you know a little bit why they're so raw and raspy i suppose it just kind of adds to everything and it's testimony to the fact that context really can be so important when you're considering music um when you think about when things were recorded why things were recorded i feel like breaking down that barrier that sometimes mysterious barrier of listening to a song and thinking okay but why is this sad or why was this written or recorded like this? I want to know, because that's the kind of relationship I have with music. I want to hear a song and know everything about it. I don't want there to be any mystery. I feel like it's it's a really nice song and that you can access those areas of it. Uh, it's, it definitely adds to the listening experience when you can understand on a deeper level what mm. what the songwriter or the singer was thinking or going through at that time, what, what inspired them to write that, why they needed to get that down on paper and then stand in a in a vocal booth and lay it all out there mm. um knowing their struggles and things i think really adds an extra dynamic to to the songs or mm. en- any artist and their songs because you're you're learning more about them when you learn how much truth yes is, is in their song exactly and and when like we said these artists are, are such a part of your life and they form parts of pivotal moments for you or intimate moments in your life it can feel very one-sided so writing songs like this and kind of showing a little bit more vulnerability and humanity because there can be this tendency to really glorify artists or musicians that you love it kind of it lets you in a little bit more and you think oh okay we are all human and this person has songs that have punctuated their life in different ways and it's kind of this never-ending chain of of music influencing people um and you realize that that sort of thing happens to everyone you know and musicians aren't kind of these untouchable beings who exist on some kind of higher plane absolutely like there's so many people put artists and and musicians or any artistic or any person that they admire on a even a metaphorical pedestal it's these kind of songs that break them down and show that they are they are just human mm. like you like me like the people the millions that will be listening to this i'm sure mm-hmm. but it it just <laughs> reminds you they are just people as well mm-hmm. they they have their faults they have their flaws um in addictions mm-hmm. in you know this particular person's case but um I highly recommend you listen to some of Dan Adriano singing because mm-hmm. he has the most beautiful vocal voice, especially really? with acoustic songs. Yeah, he's, he's so dreamy. To, mm. yeah. <laughs> Do they have a lot of acoustic songs as a band? Um, is this one of the standouts for you or are there other ones that you align with as well? Um, there, are other, there are other songs in general. There's like a handful of acoustic songs 
off the top of my head they're just blanking me but they they do do them like there's normally a couple on each album Mm. they did do an album of just acoustic versions of songs called damnesia which Mm -hmm. um people could check out blue in the face is on there which you'd think obviously because it's an acoustic but they also had like some orchestral elements like there's filler it's not just like an acoustic guitar there's other soundscapes to it but um i picked blue in the face because i felt it was most accessible and probably easier for you to to ease you into it's Mm. not my absolute favorite song but it is the one i have tattooed on me oh wow but that's something that i find really interesting about this show is that people will send me their picks and i'll think okay well this is your favorite thing and it's not necessarily always that and sometimes the art that means the most to you or the music that means the most to you or the films that mean the most to you aren't your favourite things in the whole world, which was originally what I thought art histories was going to end up being. But it's actually quite a lot more about the things that have changed you in one way or another. It's not always necessarily in a positive way. It's not always necessarily because it's your favourite thing. It's the things that kind of that mean the most that, that you wouldn't be you without, which I find really, really interesting. But you have it tattooed on you. Yeah, the very last line in the song, um, your coffin or mine, is is on my upper back. Oh, well, that's really interesting because I was, I was going to ask you because the ending of the song is so abrupt and there's no closure to the last line, but it's so poignant and it really hits you. And when I listened to it, I did have to sit back and go, oh, just for a minute, because it's four words, really. But it says so much. It's quite a dark pickup line, really. It's <laughs> it's a pickup line for goths or or the undead. You know, hey, your coffin or mine. Your well, I was. I didn't really know what to make of it. I didn't know whether it was something to be taken on that lighter level, like you said, or whether it was um, a hint at shared addiction, or whether it was kind of talking about mortality in general. Um, but it, it did hit me again, this kind of, this sense of, of your coffin or mine, you know, everything ends. Um, I just wonder who's going to go first. It's very morbid ending to a song, but it really stuck with me. And I was going to ask if it meant something to you, but clearly, clearly it does because it's tattooed <laughs> on you. It, it, and it is within a coffin. Um, oh, really? Between two lilies. Yeah. Um, it was my very first tattoo. The overriding thing I got from it is that the song ended so quickly. I didn't have time to register. And then I was left with silence. And, you know, it's fitting that it is a song about endings, um, you know. And, and it's at and, the end of the album. And it's at the end of the album. <laughs> and there's references to mortality at the end. And we know it's about the ending of a relationship. Like, there's so much about endings in that. But also kind of an acknowledgement of your experience as a listener. Um, and also of the feelings that it's trying to get across about grief. But yeah, that's, that's so clever. That's something I didn't necessarily consider. I feel it's really open to interpretation as well to individual like listeners it's clearly um about the death of relationship through addiction and things but it could also be seen as as a departing love letter to his addiction Mm. or the things he's addicted to whether that's a substance or a person or something or people can just take it as oh you know that that resonates with how like i've had breakups or not even romantic ones just friendships that Mm -hmm. like get torn apart through they they might not um, be able to stand seeing someone destroy themselves in similar ways, so they've had to walk away. Like they've they've bit their tongue, um, you know. All that followed, Phil. You can take it as as any kind of any kind of loss. Anyone who's experienced 
any kind of loss in their life, and that's pretty much everybody, I think, will be able to take something from this song. And that is one of the things that I do love so much about music, is that you can take a lot from these very short narratives. So one thing I did want to talk to you about is the lyrics, because the lyrics of this song were one of the predominant things I picked up on when I was listening. Um, I had to go away and research them because I was too intrigued. Um, (laughs) One of the lines that really stuck with me was, and I don't dream since I quit sleeping. No, I haven't slept since I met you, which I thought was such a powerful way to kind of encapsulate the derailment of a relationship or loss of love or even addiction because, you know, it's never it's never kind of stated who quote unquote you is. Um, And it reminded me that I really love lyrics because they can be used in tandem with the melodies in music to make tangible these really messy, complex emotional truths that we find really hard to vocalise. We've already talked about a lyric, but do you have any other lyrics from the song that stand out for you? Possibly the opening line where he says that it's about time that I came clean with you. I'm Mm -hmm. no longer fine and no longer running smooth or um, far from interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like that's something that, you know, various points since I've listened to it has, has resonated quite a bit. Because, you know, like you try to put on a brave face and you try to be cheerful and lucky, particularly like in your work or just with like your wider circle of friends that maybe don't know know you so well. And you don't want to like unload like everything that you've got going on. But then, you know, it's that moment when you finally break down. And you're like, you know what? I'm I'm no longer fine. Mm-hmm. Um, I I can't carry this weight by myself anymore. Like mm. I I have to voice it because you know it it could go another way. Mm. Luckily, like nothing like that has ever happened for me. But like the feeling of like I have to like voice what I'm feeling. Mm-hmm. Like it's become too much to hold myself. That that line is kind of when you hit breaking point. Um, and I feel like everybody has hit a breaking point on some level in their lives. It doesn't have to be as extreme as the way it's kind of articulated in the song. But I think everyone, like you said, has had that moment where they thought, oh, actually, I'm not coping. I'm not all right. I'm not doing that well, um, particularly over the, the last year or so. You know, probably a lot more people have hit that point than ever before. Um, And I feel like those four words, I'm no longer fine. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that you have been putting on a brave face for so long or you have been trying. And, you know, there's an acknowledgement that there's there's so much you can be grateful for and appreciative of, but you can still feel awful and you can still get to a point where you think, no, I need help now. Heartbreaking to listen to, but so intelligent, so clever. I now have mixed feelings about putting this as a choice because, you know, I, I want you to feel... But, I mean, I don't want to bum people out. Um, I want them to enjoy. I feel like what makes this song so special, though, is that it it's not an overwhelmingly depressing listen, even though the lyrics are, there's a lot of sadness in there. I don't think it leaves you feeling particularly morose or, or melancholy. You know, when I left it, I think, I felt more contemplative than anything. Um, I felt like there was a lot that the song touched upon. It's also a very reflective song. Um, which I always love with music is is songs that kind of acknowledge change or growth in some way. Um, I really like the song. Um, I have to admit, when I saw the Alkaline Trio were like an American punk rock band, um, I was like, where is this going to take me? But it, it turned out to be such a, a moving and emotionally complex song captured in a seemingly simplistic way. And I think it's 
that's just testament to the fact that you can never ever judge a band or an album by by how it appears because there are always bands that will have these sort of hidden gems and there's always so much variation even within genres of music there's so much scope there um and this show is always teaching me that so thank you james (laughs) wonderful um yeah i felt the song ends on a kind of upbeat note personally Mm. maybe others disagree but i feel like the the question is is a more you know hey you know your coffin or mine is mm. despite the bleakness of his situation he's there's like a glimmer of hope to me that like you know something might turn around he might find his you know his grave mate or whatever mm. I, don't, I don't know it's the idea that even in songs that do feel overwhelmingly sad or situations that do feel um overwhelmingly sad there's always a glimmer of hope there's always there's always a little bit of light in the darkness because nothing's ever one thing or the other um, as all of your picks have proved to us. <laughs> I hope that the theme of hope is picked up throughout my three choices because I, I think at, at their root, all three have some degree of hope to them. Mm. But um, yeah, they very much came along um, and in some way helped me find my voice because as in my more formative years, I was like 13 when I really started to appreciate them. No, 16 something like that whenever i was leaving school but um i was quite a shy quiet kid really unless i was amongst my, my you know my, my crew of misfits mm-hmm. they, they were the ones i think but to the wider world i was quite quiet quite shy quite withdrawn and like i go with i was Vern. yeah i said before i was Vern, and, and i just feel there's like something lyrically about them drew like aspects of my personality out even like if i can't express how i'm feeling I can usually point to one of their songs and be like, this this is kind of what I'm trying to tell you. Mm. I can't say it. I'm struggling with my words. Please listen to this and hopefully understand. But yeah, still inside me beats the heart of that shy, quiet kid. But I'm, I'll forever feel I'm not sure of my place in, in the order of things, but I feel that they help me come to terms with who I am a bit more mm. and let me come out more and Mm. show more aspects of my oh so charismatic personality (laughs) and isn't it wonderful when you do so your final pick today is another film and you've chosen the green mile which is our second stephen king pick of the show so we've got ourselves a little stephen king sandwich here today um it is definitely one of his most famous films it's an american fantasy drama film written and directed by Frank Darabont, based on Stephen King's 1996 novel of the same name. And it stars Tom Hanks as a death row corrections officer during the Great Depression of the 1930s, who witnesses supernatural events after a mysterious inmate is brought to his faculty. So the film is told in flashback format and introduces us to elderly retiree Paul Edgecombe from his retirement home, where he begins recounting a tale to his friend Elaine about events that he witnessed in 1935 when he was a correctional officer at Cold Mountain's Death Row, nicknamed the Green Mile. So the film itself is quite long, um, quite complicated. It is based on a series of six books So if you're wondering why I'm struggling to condense every element of the film down into a simple synopsis, it's because you can't really do that. The film itself is 
three hours long and even then I'm sure there are so many elements of the book that have been missed out on or skimmed over. I know there are characters that are in the film that aren't as fully formed as they are in the books and in the books we get a lot more of the the background information about the inmates and why they're in death row. I think one of the main questions I had about the other inmates was why they were on death row in the first place. So, you know, it's quite a large undertaking to to try and, and condense all of those books down into one film. I wanted to know, how and when did you first encounter the film? And did you read the books first? Um, no, it is one that I, again, I saw the film first. Mm-hmm. But once I watched it, straight away I was reading it. I think our school library had a copy of it. And yeah, I'd, I'd spend time instead of doing coursework or homework like sat reading like a you were reading or... the the green mile i think most people instead of doing homework or coursework at school were well drinking or being <laughs> delinquent <laughs> that that wasn't my the crowd i met <laughs> you were reading stephen king <laughs> um yeah i'll just sit in the library and yeah i, I read it because i was like oh that's that film it, it must be surely it's not coincidentally the same title and then mm. you know you're introduced to john coffee and yeah I, I just didn't stop and i've read it like i think four or five times now really Wow. But I can't say that I'll be able to give much insight and depth to <laughs> the literacy and So was this this film and then the books, was it your your introduction to King? I know that you you said you'd seen Stand By Me when you, you were eight, but obviously you didn't really have much realisation of the fact that you were you were being exposed to Stephen King. So was this kind of was this the first film that you saw where you were aware it was a Stephen King or did you find other works of his first? No, I think this was the first the first one and then mm. that was swiftly followed by Shawshank Redemption mm-hmm. and then and then I think I discovered the older stuff because I started to realise who it was that was writing it. The Green Mile was definitely the first one that I was fully aware of. Uh, it, it was a Stephen King work. One of the things that King is most famous for is his complex multi-layered characters and arguably one of the most notable in these in in the green mile is paul you know the story is framed through his eyes and he's portrayed in what i found to be an incredibly nuanced and moving way by tom hanks although this could be my tom hanks bias talking um do you agree do you think that he's portrayed effectively or do you think we get a better sense of him in the books no yeah i i think if you've read the book and then you watch the film you totally see paul edgecombe when you look at tom hanks Mm. right down to his struggle in the bathroom he even portrays that like quite de- in quite a detailed manner. Mm. It's not like, a, oh, I'll make some noises behind like a door to suggest I'm having trouble. It just shows the dedication he puts into well, each of his roles, really, mm. I suppose. I think Paul is undoubtedly not a flawless character, uh, but we do see him embodying an admirable, at the very least a humane level of morality, considering the unpleasantness of his job. Do you think he f- serves as one of the main forces of good in the film? I, I think so, yeah, because um, he even says to like Percy, like, it, it's basically there's no point heaping more misery on them. They're, they're there for, for what they've done. They're, they're going to pay for what they've done. It's the, why make them suffer more? Mm. As, as a basic human right, they deserve to be treated as humans. They're monsters in, in a more philosophical sense than, you know, actual woo, like monsters. The things they do are monstrous, but they mm. are at their root still just human yeah i feel like we're constantly being reminded of the fact that no matter what these men have done and you know we're not left under any illusions as to the fact that that the things they've done are horrible at the end of the day they are flesh and bone um and they can't be made to be monsters as much as 
traditional monsters in a horror book or film might be because they are human you know they're made of the same things as us and that's kind of comforting but also terrifying at the same time because we're all made of the same things and king shows us what certain people choose to do or maybe don't choose to do or end up doing um with their lot i feel like there's a lot of allusions to that kind of you know it can go either way for any of us there's good and bad in all of us and we can we can choose or we have some influence over which way that goes i did want to ask you about morality because one of the things I really struggled with when I was watching this is whether there is a concrete good or evil in this film. And I don't think there ever is. I don't think there ever can be, but I was looking for kind of a more definitive force for good to kind of cling on to and a more definitive force for evil to cling on to. But we're not really offered like clear-cut answers to that. There are possible examples for both sides. You've got Paul and John and Brutus versus Will and Percy, but there are loads of morally grey characters as well, such as Del, who we assume must have done something pretty terrible to be on death row, but appears so sweet and charming with his mouse, Mr. Jingles. Do you have any thoughts about that? Like, is it easy to kind of place the characters in one category or another? I mean, it's. I think that there's a a clear divide between who are who are good characters and who are quote unquote the the bad ones. But there's a lot of grey. I feel like like in real life, like it's nothing is ever clear cut. Like even mm. what John Coffey does. Um, I don't know whether it's a question you're going to ask later, so I won't delve too much. But not everything he does is entirely pure. Mm. But he does it with good intentions and for his, well, what he believes is the right thing. Because justice in some way or form he thinks has to be meted out. Yeah, that's really interesting that you noticed that about John Coffey because it would be really quite easy to watch the film and just come away with the sense that he is a purely good character and one of the only maybe one of the most kind of viscerally endearing good quote-unquote characters in a film and just think that there's there's kind of no ambiguity to what he does or doesn't do but there are things that happen later on like you say where he kind of he passes the misdeeds or the misfortune that others suffer onto people that he feels deserve it more maybe um and and whilst as a viewer you might agree with that there's still a sense that as humans do any of us have the right to judge who does or doesn't deserve certain things or certain misfortunes or unpleasant circumstances there was there's kind of a sense of uneasiness i got watching it was that i don't think any of us should have that power to kind of kind of take away somebody's bad circumstances and pass them on to somebody else because you think that that person deserves it more it's it's quite it's interesting in that sense and quite challenging as well oh yeah because outside of the story like if they if you were to believe they do live full like fleshed out lives you don't know the situations that have driven people like percy to be the kind of person he is but yeah i, I don't think anyone really should have the power to decide who deserves what given john's stature and his um his position within the story it's i'm guessing most fitting that it is him that that does play judge in certain situations for sure like like he feels he is the spokesperson there's an argument that that death row is kind of the world 
um, in which our characters exist. We don't really see any of the characters anywhere but on the Green Mile. Obviously, the, the inmates, because they can't leave, uh, and that's where they live and die. But also the prison guards as well. You know, we see little snippets of Paul's home life, but not really anything concrete. There's this idea that everything you see that you need to know about these characters happens on the Green Mile, because it seems to be this place that draws out the essence of your character. Whether that's good, whether that's bad, um, it will kind of come to light on the Green Mile. There's this sense that even though you can come away from it feeling like you don't know a lot about their backstories or their their lives outside of that or their pasts and think, well, hang on, there might be things that I don't know about that will offer me more ambiguity or make this character more redeemable. I feel like King kind of shows us that in this sort of extreme circumstance, we have to judge by what we see because what we're seeing is like the purest essence of each character. It brings out their their innermost values. It's interesting that you mentioned John Coffey because he, despite the ambiguity that we touched on earlier, he has to be one of the most endearing and quietly beautiful characters I've ever seen in a film. He's so tall and physically imposing, but he's infinitely breakable. You know, he stands out like this fragile daisy in a field of weeds and it was so difficult not to feel for him throughout the film i had such a visceral reaction every time he was exposed to the cruelty of other characters it's almost like he was i don't know if you got this but i i almost felt like he was kind of the physical representation of what it feels like to be an empath or to feel the emotions of other people deeply because you literally see his his visceral physical reactions to what happens to other people and how other people feel it's like he's been exposed more to the emotional elements of life do you think it's kind of these elements of his character that that resonate so deeply with an audience member do you think he resonates deeply with audience members or is this just my immediate response to the film um, no, absolutely. Um, you can't help, even the moment he steps out the back of that police wagon. I, I feel it's um, symbolic that there's so much weight on those axles, because not because of his imposing stature, but the weight that he carries within yeah. himself from everything he absorbs from all the hurt around the world. He carries that within him. Yes. And I feel that's very much like a, a first, in, like a, a good first introduction to look at him he's nothing like what you would think he would be he's no. such a gentle giant um he cares so deeply he feels so deeply and you just can't help but sympathize and just want him to be at even though you know the end of the story you want him to get away even mm -hmm. after the nth time watching it when i watched it yesterday i was still like maybe this time and i i had that too obviously watching it for the first time i was like please make me believe in humanity in some way. Please don't make this man die. <laughs> the way that the story does end for him, it's it's not exactly how you would expect. He does get a little bit more autonomy over his fate than you would necessarily expect from an inmate on death row. But it still doesn't satisfy you as a viewer. Um, it definitely didn't satisfy me as a viewer. Uh, it was still completely heartbreaking. And I think you're right as well, from the very, very beginning, from when we first meet him, there's this sense that this man is undeniably tender and fragile. I think as soon as you look at his eyes, 
There's such a focus on his eyes throughout the film. There's so much truth in there and honesty and rawness. You can't help but see a man who is not overwhelmingly pure because, again, we can't generalise any of these characters as purely one thing or another, but that's so innocent, really, um, largely, and, and exposed to everything. Do you get this kind of sense in the books as well, or do you think it really helps having the visual stimuli of the film to kind of cling on to. I think that the book does more than a good enough job introducing you and and giving you a feel for who he is. Mm. But I think in the film, it's lent a lot by Michael Clark Duncan's fantastic portrayal. He, Mm. you know, he's an incredible talent that is, you know, sorely missed. When you watch it or you even read it, you can't picture anyone else being John Coffey. Mm-hmm. If you go away and read it now after watching it, you will see him. You can't picture anyone else. It, that that's He is John Coffey for me, at the mm. very least. And it's, as you said, like the way, the simple things, just how he looks. He doesn't have to do too much. It's just like a facial expression, mm-hmm. how he comes across when he feels what's happening to others, how he comes across when he's trying to help others. Like he, he takes it all, he feels it all, and, and you can clearly see it. Um, but yeah, I think the film does as good. It, it does a, a good vis- visual representation of who he is, but the book obviously gives more time to who he is as a character. Mm, yeah, I suppose it depends on kind of which way you connect more whether it helps to have that kind of visual standpoint to lean on or whether you rely more on words and how somebody's embodied through narrative either way you know i think you completely end up falling for him as a character i don't think i've ever been so viscerally moved by a plot before it is singularly heartbreaking in its message about humanity because it suggests that there's an inevitable darkness that underpins the way people treat one another that there's bound to be some injustice involved whenever humans are placed together in any capacity we will always end up being unpleasant to one another do you think that this is the main message of the film do you do you agree that that that's true or do you think there's more of an optimistic thing that can be taken from it i would like to say there's a more optimistic point to it i'm not entirely sure i've discovered what that is but it is it is very much a mirror to society of it's very much in a condensed environment Mm. but all over the world people treat themselves with such ugliness um and i think it's amplified within this setting because as i said it is a very condensed space Mm. it all takes place basically on e-block but yeah he's he's i feel it is a mirror to how society interacts as a whole really because that was the the overwhelming sense i got from it especially at the end when when Paul notes that in a way we are all walking our own green mile um, of, of some sort, you know, carrying the, the misdeeds that we've done, the bad things that we've said, we're all carrying those on our way to death, um, which is kind of an overwhelmingly negative way to think about things. But because like you, I am somebody who's naturally drawn to optimism and I like to see the good in people. I like to look for the beauty in things and in this film I found it very hard to do that but I suppose it's showing you that if you put the effort in and you do actually really work for it you can find the beauty in those small things and you know what you're left with is is the sad feeling but I suppose when you ruminate on it and you reflect on it and when you have a bit more time to think about it you do get those more. Do you think it's something that you have to watch or engage with several times because the way you talk about it you know there's with a lot more nuance and a lot more kind of acknowledgement of those optimistic moments 
than someone like me who saw it once and just thought this is one of the saddest things I've ever seen. Um, do you think it's one of those films that you have to keep engaging with in order to fully get everything from it? Um, yeah, if, if you want to get all you can from it, it's one you definitely have to watch more more times. It's not a one and done. But when, well, I always see the first viewing as like it's the groundwork. It lays the foundation. Yeah. You know what's coming. You, you can prepare yourself for moments, but you start to pick up on the more smaller like interactions and gestures that you on the first viewing you don't really take in but mm. the more you watch it you pick up more on the tone and what happens um what what the significance of various like conversations or just the way they they react and interact w- with each other mm. um you you see so much more the more you see it mm. i think that's that's so true because whilst i do think i got so much from it because it is it's Stephen King after all that thing that we have been talking about constantly today is the fact that nothing is left to chance you know everything in in King's stories has a reason and the story is not always the main focal point um and when you're watching something for the first time and you don't know where the story is going I think quite a lot of your energy can be spent on trying to work out where the narrative is going to take you rather than the things that you can learn along the way i feel like it's something i'm gonna have to watch periodically for the rest of my life in order to fully take as much as i can from it and it's just it's almost baffling to me that that we as humans can create narratives this complex and challenging that you you can constantly return to as if it's the first time because you get something different from it every single time you watch it um absolutely like the the beauty of the multiple watches means you can leave the narrative to the back of your mind that's just ticking along and it frees you up to appreciate and spot all the more the the moments and you know because there is more than just the the story that he's telling it's stories within stories like it overall it's it's each character's individual struggle the the impact those struggles are having i love that that you said there are there are stories within stories and when you look at the film you know, you might originally think this is John Coffey's story and it's about John Coffey being ultimately wrongly convicted of something. But there's there's so much going on in the background, seemingly, you know, in the minute of the interactions with all the different characters and the kind of sub-stories that dominate the film because it does take a while for John Coffey's story to get going. And um, Do you have a favourite of those little stories within stories do you have a particular favorite of those small moments that tell you a lot about characters um i i mean a lot of people probably wouldn't say this but i think mr jingles to be honest his journey from going from you know e-blocks mouse magician because no one knows where he disappears to they've cleared out that padded room where does he go but it's i feel really the story stephen's trying to tell is his journey to mouseville that's that that for me is i mean it's not obviously but i'd like to think if you want to be an optimist the story is how he eventually gets his little mouse circus albeit a cigar box in a shed at a care home in the middle of nowhere that has cows i think (laughs) there is something wonderful about mr jingles isn't there he he exists as like this overly innocent and pure 
earmarker amongst all of the darkness and the bleakness of death row mr jingles is perfect for the story in in that he very much um he reflects what each character their true self is there is so much more that we could say about this film we could be here for hours and hours we could be here for three hours and ten minutes which is the length of the film in case you were wondering we could be here for the amount of time it would take you to read all six of the books but um I think you you really do have to go and watch it and as James said watch it several times because I definitely know I didn't get everything from this film on the first watch I know I'm gonna have to go away and engage with it more but from a first watch I can tell you that I completely adored it no matter how maybe negatively it made me feel about the human condition I think it's it's very much saying that you you definitely get more from the more you, you see it or you read it mm. i think however it makes you feel about humanity it is one of those stories that is just jaw-dropping um and and you can take that positively or negatively but it is most definitely something that changes you and something that you have to engage with at least once definitely i would say so i'm just grateful that you suggested it for the show today because it was probably one of the most ambitious texts i've undertaken in researching this show there are others that that rival it but um this is definitely up there and i feel like it's it's given me so much so thank you hopefully you take more hope from humanity from it because you know it shows there is still good there there is hope there are good eggs out there they're just being spoiled by a minority really they just shout louder yes So your chosen mediums today were two films and a song. And I have to say, I wasn't hugely surprised that you chose films because I've always known that it's an important medium for you. Can you properly articulate just what it is about film that makes it such an evocative genre for you? Um, Oh, that's that's probably an easy one for others to answer. But I think it's just a, a direct way to see the point that someone is trying to get across. With words, you can get mm. lost in daydreaming or, you know, you're not really paying attention. But whereas a film, it's in front of you, you see it, you're taking it in, whether you think you're taking it in or not, something is mm-hmm. filtering through and it, it, it will sit there and it might just pop up at the most random time. It's very involving on that on that level, isn't it? One thing I noticed, which, you know, it's not difficult to notice, but there is lots of King here today. Uh, he clearly means a lot to you. Do you engage with his literary works or is it the film adaptations that hold your heart more? I, I would say it's, it is the books. I love the films, yeah. but where some of the films are hit and miss, his work is just solid throughout. Like It always draws me in. There's not been a single book when I'm like, oh, this is taking ages to get my interest. I'm not like, maybe it will mm. start getting soon. I'm I'm reading it and I'm like, what's what's next? Oh, I'll finish this chapter. But something will happen within that chapter. I'm like, no, I've got to know what, what happens next. And before I know it, I've, I've finished the book. I think the final question that I wanted to ask you today is, if you had to recommend one of these three picks to somebody listening right now, which would it be and why? Um, stand by me, I think. Really? Yeah. Um, for as important as um, Blue in the Face or more more specifically Alkaline Trio are to me, um, mm-hmm. I think Stand By Me brings me the most joy because every time I watch it, it takes me back to that child that saw it 
all those years mm. ago, like that eight, nine-year-old kid. And I remember how I was back then and, and how much, how carefree and happy and simple things were. That was an adventure, whereas now it's the monotony of getting up, going to work, coming home, knackered. But yeah, every time I see it, I'm always transported back to the, the more innocent, more fun times of childhood. So it's, it's always good memories, mm. really. It's, it's a feel-good thing for me. Yeah. Oh, that's so lovely. Um, James, I've had such a wonderful time researching your favourite artistic works for this show, and it's been so wonderful to have you on. My heart has been touched by the joyous and boyish camaraderie of Gordy, Chris, Vern and Teddy in Stand By Me. I've been moved beyond words by the Alkaline Trio, and I've fallen for Tom Hanks all over again, and I never thought it would have been possible for me to love him more in heartbreaking film The Green Mile. You being someone I've always gotten on with really well at work, it's been so wonderful to get to know you on a deeper level through the things you love. Um, they've been emotionally involving, morally challenging and complex and really made me think. I can't wait to hopefully properly see you again soon at work. Uh, fingers crossed we'll be working again soon, everyone. But thank you so much for coming on in the meantime. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. It's been an absolute blast um, revisiting these things and just remembering why they meant so much. It's, yeah, I can't even say like how much this experience has generally meant to me this past week, just rediscovering and reconnecting with potentially lost loves. Like, you know, it, I maybe forgot how much I loved these things. So um, thank you for helping me rediscover all of that. Oh, you're so welcome. Oh. And that's the end of my chat with James. I really hope you enjoyed it. I honestly love this episode so much. I'll be back next week with a brand new show and a brand new guest. Thanks for listening.